Content warning. This series contains mentions of mental health issues, suicide, sexual abuse, and other sensitive subjects. This is your host, Andrew Pledger, and this is Surviving Bob Jones University, a Christian cult. Inspiration and power, both the Old and the New Testaments, the creation of man by the direct act of God, the incarnation and virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Episode 12 Cult Experts Insights. The cult experts are Rachel Bernstein, LMFT, and Daniela Messinek Young. The first cult expert I'm having on today is Rachel Bernstein. She is a therapist and a cult expert, and she comes on the show to share her insights on Bob Jones University. Rachel is a host of the Indoctrination podcast, which covers cults, manipulators, and systems of control. For over 30 years, she has helped former cult members and those who have loved ones in cults and also in highly manipulative relationships. Rachel has helped people from over 300 cults throughout her career. She provides individual counseling, family counseling, and when possible, group therapy for former cult members. She also helps families trying to reach out to their loved ones in the cult. She has led workshops and classes at USC in the School of Social Work, and the Department of Psychiatry at California State University at Northridge, and at various colleges and universities in the New York area. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to have Rachel Bernstein on the podcast today. And for those who don't know, I work for her and help her with social media on her podcast, Indoctrination Podcast. I'm so honored to learn from her and help her help other cult survivors. I'm excited to have you on to really help educate people on cults and the nuances and the complexities of it. That's why I think I'm so excited about this podcast because it's an opportunity to use Bob Jones as an example and to analyze and to educate people on cults that some people may not even think is a cult. So thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And it's actually been really interesting to read through your analysis. And I know there are things that we're going to talk about related to that and other things that you're wanting to add as addendums to it, which always happens whenever I write up anything. And as I'm reading it through, I'm thinking, oh, and then there was also this and there was also this. And it just, I think it just shows how much you dealt with that not only were there the things in your analysis, but there is even more levels of control and the language that we'll talk about, et cetera. Yeah, take it away. Let's start wherever you want, because it'd be great to dig into the levels of control and manipulation that were just woven in to your life, even before Bob Jones, but definitely at Bob Jones 
And I think also the social psychology, the social pressure that you're under at a university. Yeah. So I think it's important to start with defining terms because people have a lot of misconceptions of what a cult is. So in the most general sense, what is a cult? People ask me how I would define a cult, especially if I'm trying to compare it to a religion or even a fundamentalist branch of a religion. And honestly, there are some similarities. And sometimes people will say, oh, I was raised with orthodoxy, orthodox whatever. And it looks and feels similar to this. But the first thing is when there is unquestioning devotion to the leader, to the teachings. Even if they change, even if the leader like disagrees with themselves from Monday to Tuesday, you still have to go with it and know that it's the truth. And if you have critical thinking and you're noticing discrepancies, you're noticing things that don't make sense, you have to ignore it all. And you learn how to ignore your critical thinking, put it away because it's seen as evil. I think also there is this us versus them mentality. We have something that other people don't have, or we need to be fearful of the people outside who will try to bring us down or bring us away from this, looking down on the world and feeling like you can't be a part of it in any kind of gentle or meaningful way. It's going to be that there's going to be some major conflict. I think also a cult is an independent organization. And whenever I hear like the independent church of something, whatever, I think, uh-oh. Because that does often mean, not always, but it often means that the leader then answers to no one and no one is watching. There isn't a major worldwide organization that has like an ethics board that's going to oversee what the leader says. So they can say and do whatever they want. I think also, very often, within a cult, the rules only apply to the followers. The leader can say or do whatever they want and often do. They will sometimes follow by the same rules, but also if they don't, they'll somehow explain it away and justify it. And you need to be okay with that discrepancy. There's also black and white thinking, no gray. This is good. This is bad. This is evil. This is safe. This is dangerous, but nothing in between. You're a good person. You're a bad person. And it also holds all the answers. You don't need anything else. You don't need anyone else. You don't need a therapist. You don't need a group of friends outside. You, this is it. This is your be all and end all in terms of everything you need and all the answers to all your life's questions. And I think also that it becomes your entire life. It's more important than anything else, more important than your family, more important than your career, more important than really anyone else. But it becomes you and the lens through which you see everything. So people are usually not involved in, let's say, a church group and whatever group of friends and their career. And also they happen to be in a cult. It's the cult. And then if they're allowed to have anything else, that's based on what the cult will allow you to have. Okay. It, yeah. It's interesting that last part that you said that it's like all of you and it was interesting because I can think of all the people, there are people that go to Bob Jones University and they end up, their career is there. Mm -hmm. Their friends are there. And 
they only go to Bob Jones approved churches or the church is run by a Bob Jones graduate. This idea of Bob Jones is like they have the right interpretation of theology and is the truth. And going outside of that theology or that belief system is seen as very dangerous and is seen as straying away from God. And yes, there's so many things that you were saying, but yet it becomes all of you. When you're at Bob Jones University, as when I talked on your podcast, there's so many required activities where you don't get a break from the doctrine or the teachings. You don't get a break to really be alone and you're watched in the dorms and you're being watched everywhere to just follow all these rules and the rules are seen as the truth and as aligned with God's word. And there's this whole snitching system that's in place also. And just all these different levels to control every aspect of who you are. And when I announced this podcast, people, a lot of people were really angry and even confused that I called Bob Jones University a cult. And what I got was people saying, bringing up the worst case scenarios that have happened in cults and being like, oh, we're, it's not like Waco or we didn't drink Kool-Aid or we didn't poison ourselves. What? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. This is a, they're like, isn't that a bit dramatic? What I'm hoping through this podcast is that people realize that these cults that went to these extreme levels, they never started out that way. Mm-hmm. And I think you had said before in a podcast that I listened to, that no one goes into a cult and knows exactly what they're getting into. No one went into Jonestown knowing, oh yeah, we're all going to commit suicide eventually towards the end. And I think people have this very extreme caricature and this black and white view and this box that the word cult has to fit into, when in reality... It exists on a spectrum of control and that there are cults that are really extreme and they do human trafficking and they imprison their members. And there are less extreme cults where they don't take it to that degree, but there's still so much control. So could you explain how cults exist on a spectrum and that it's not a black and white term? When you define a cult, you're not talking about poison. You're not talking about a mothership. You're not talking about a lot of things of fiery destruction. You're talking about something where they're you're like investigating the nature of the relationship between the leader and the followers in terms of absolute control. And so not being able to have negative emotions, not being able to be angry, be resentful, be sad even, be depressed, that you disengage from yourself and then need to show that you are a good follower of this. And just that dissociation is part of what makes something, I think, controlling so manipulative within a cult. So you don't need to actually have feel like your life is in danger to have that kind of control. It would be like saying that 
telling someone who hits you that they're being abusive and they say, no, I'm not. I never pushed you off a cliff. What? It does, it's not about that. It's about the fact that you feel unsafe ultimately with this other person who doesn't mind crossing boundaries, feels ultimately entitled to treat you this way over and over again, and that you don't have the right and the capability of protecting yourself. So that as a nugget, a central nugget, that, and also that you, if you are being mistreated, you deserve it, I think is something that can be done in cultic groups where it's, they're just talking. They're just telling you that you don't, your life doesn't have value without us. And that if I give you a hard time, it's to help. It's that's God's love or that's something you've shown that you'd need to keep yourself in line. That's just as culty as we need to kill our corporal selves to go to the mothership. Because one is just along the same continuation and it gets more extreme behaviorally. And it can get more extreme in terms of the belief system, but the control, the I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it. And I'm going to treat you in a bad way and you're going to appreciate it and feel that this is something that's helping you is something that can grow and can be used and misused. It can move into a lot of different directions. It can be taken into sexual directions of people being raped within groups. And that's a way of being specially chosen or something you have, like some penance you need to pay for a past life. But it could also just be you are not allowed to talk to your parents again because I've determined that they are evil forces and just robbing you of your life. So Again, from that central kernel of control, it can be taken in dangerous ways and not as dangerous ways physically, but just equally dangerous emotionally because you're handicapped from protecting the self and the psyche. After reading my analysis, what are some of your initial thoughts about Jones University based on your expertise? Oh, I have lots of little nuggets here that I wrote down because it is so interesting. Okay. First, the control of emotions and negative emotions that within the context of this Bob Jones University, where you are made to go to lots of services and to chapel and people are watching you and going through your things and you're basically treated like you're a criminal. And made to feel, I think, a lot of shame about natural human emotions and drives, whether they fall under the rubric of a drive that might be considered straight or gay or anywhere in between. But still, just having something that is built into your system developmentally and that you're feeling it, because that's what happened, that then you somehow have to look down on yourself. Being able to say that's Satan, being able to say something's controlling you in a negative way so that you have to then dismiss those drives and you have to dismiss your anger and the resentment, etc. It's like tying someone's hand behind their back because those drives help us know who we are. And also, if it's a drive, let's say, to be angry and to do damage to someone, 
if we just hear, oh, that's something that means that you did something wrong or that's Satan, you're not teaching people how to address it. Once you, if they were to go to therapy, a therapist would normalize it and say, okay, so tell us about why or tell me about why you're feeling this way. Let's see what other options you have so that you don't have to feel overcome with this emotion, but not what have you done to cause yourself to feel this way or what, what spiritual onslaught are you under? You don't learn how to manage what is naturally occurring inside of you. And you have to teach yourself that once you leave. The other thing that I think is so interesting is how words are interpreted and reinterpreted, misinterpreted. Okay, let's just delve into the word freedom. Hello. Okay, freedom within this group is, or true freedom, right, is devoting yourself to Christ and, what does it say, placing your identity in him. And that love also, as you talk about it, is reinterpreted. And that it is about when you are shamed or blamed, harshly disciplined, even for things like mental health issues, you're told that's being done out of love. So if you think that freedom is giving up freedom, and if you think that love equals sometimes abuse, then it is setting people up to have the kind of life that I hear about a lot, like in the support group that people come to, where they say, I left one thing and I got into something else. I didn't realize the first thing was conditioning me to get involved in an abusive relationship or to get involved in a workplace that was highly abusive or to believe someone who hit me and said, I'm doing that out of love. To not know what freedom really is and what it looks like and that and also to not ever have the experience of knowing I can trust myself within it. That I don't need to have this, these walls around me, these chains around me, basically, in order to feel free. That I could be, actually be out in the world and enjoy my life, not be a sinner. But you just never get a chance to see it that way. I think also when you're told that you need to say this creed, in chapel, there was an audio tape I heard years ago from a service run by a cult leader named Elizabeth Clare Prophet, who ran the Church Universal and Triumphant. And she had a paragraph that she gave everyone to memorize. And you stood up at these services of hers and you said this paragraph, and then you said it again faster, and you said it again faster, and you said it again faster. And it was putting everyone basically in a trance. And hearing it from the outside, it sounded like bees buzzing almost. Like it didn't sound like words, didn't sound human. And you, I think, forfeit yourself when you have to follow by a certain creed. But a creed is something also that should be personally chosen. You should be able to have your own personal creed. Not, here is the thing that you need to say and believe. And if you don't, we're going to follow you. And we're going to berate you for not following it. Because it's not giving you any chance to develop your own way of thinking, of believing, of looking at the world. There's, it's just so incredible the amount of push for conformity and how much fear is used for conformity 
And then the snitching. Almost every cultic system has a snitching part of it and that you get points for being a snitch. And there is the need for the leader to have intel. And there's the need for the leader to know that you're being watched so that you don't do anything you're not supposed to do. And a leader then can start this machine going by having other people operate the gears. Like they can just say, this is the rule. And now I'm going to elect people to be my law enforcement, my spiritual law enforcement. And then they're going to watch other people. And I can just sit back and know that this is in place and that people are going to do it because they know they're going to get points for it. And they're then not going to be on the hot seat or they'll get rewarded. And it is incredibly unhealthy. And sometimes it can bring out the worst in people. And sometimes it can draw the worst of people who love it, like they find it delicious. They would do it even if they weren't being told they had to. And so it just so unhealthy and so just unpleasant to just look at. But you're also treated like you're a felon. You're treated like you're an acting out child in that way. You don't really get a chance to say, wait, I'm an adult. I'm actually a good person. No one needs to be doing this to me. And that was sort of the things off the top of my head. <laughs> no, there's were so many good things. And thank you for your insight into that. And sharing that story about that leader also reciting it. Oh, like it's, oh, it's just so creepy. And when I hear and talk with Bob Joe students who have left, they were like, I didn't realize how awful it was. Until I got on the outside and I could actually experience something different. I could find out what a healthy relationship was like. I could find out what a healthy group is like, where I can belong and I can have opinions and I can express myself without the fear of being kicked out or expelled or being shunned in the group. And... Yeah, there's just, there's so many aspects at Bob Jones University. And I think it was interesting to like earlier when you talked about like the, the devotion to the leader or even just devotion to the teachings. I've definitely seen, I think the kind of cult-like following that the past president headed, which he just left the university. He was there from like 2014 and was there till May, 2023. But just when people found out that he most likely wasn't going to be there anymore and the Bob Jones Board of Trustees were maybe like possibly not going to vote him back on, I just remember all these students who had like really cared so deeply for him. And I think it's great to care about someone, but to see some of these students create flags with his face on it and go out to rally to support him or go out to a gathering to support him and getting pictures i'm like Ugh. it really made me uncomfortable to see that devotion that people had to him to even i think it's good to have those role models in your life but to go to the point to create that kind of stuff with their image on to worship them in a way and I think a lot of students, and I think this happens in a lot of cults where 
people see that person as a godlike or spiritually superior or closer to God. If I get to them, I'm closer to God. And I want to be like this person because they're really close to God. And I think it's also interesting because Steve Pettit, he was from the military. And I know Daniela, she's going to be on this episode, but she talks about the military being a cult and the authoritarianism and Steve Pettit, he was very authoritarian leader. It was interesting to see so many students support him. I think this podcast, I want to help people know what a cult is, but I think it's also important for people to know why do people join cults? So why? I think people don't join a cult. They don't know Mm -hmm. that it's a cult. So they get involved because they are looking for something that if they're used to, Having an environment that is very structured and has lots of rules, I think they find that environment to feel very much familiar. And they're still, I think, of the belief that they need that. Like this whole idea of you having this discipleship group that is to build honest relationship. But also part of it is for accountability and encouragement. Okay, fine. But basically, it's the same thing. So because they're encouraging you to do what they are telling you to do. But this idea that somehow you need an outside source to keep you accountable, that you don't have this internalized sense of doing what's right. And that a lot of people are raised with that notion, like parents who raise their kids, like with just telling them, be good before they leave the house as though they weren't going to be on their own. So... I think that, and then there are a lot of kids who will say, I just decided to do the wrong thing because my parents expected that of me anyway. So I think it can set up people to push those boundaries needlessly. But I think, so So I think sometimes people are looking for that kind of holding environment with a leader who's going to keep them accountable and safe. And then other people are looking for something that helps them with their anxiety with not just wanting to feel alone in the world, not wanting to feel unsafe in the world, and this is going to offer them the answers, or eternal something, or absolute health. And then sometimes for community, for a real sense of insta-community, instant connection, and that it feels, I think, really good. There are, I think, a range of experiences that people have at Bob Jones, and I noticed, and I've talked about this with the friend of mine who went to Bob Jones with me, we realized that the struggle is that you, if you really want to help other people and make a difference on the campus, you have to agree with their theology and you have to do it in the way that they want you to do it, which isn't really helping people. So for me, like being a person who cares and wants to help people And then going to that school, a lot of their community service stuff that you could get involved with was like, yeah, maybe you would go and help this person do this. And then you would share the gospel with them. It was like, yes, help this person, but use this as an opportunity to spread this message and this truth. And for me, I was like, like, this seemed manipulative to me. And also for me, I was at that point where I was questioning and it's, and also we noticed that the student leaders who would get up in the organization, trying to remember what they called it. It was like the student leader council, something like that. I think it was something that the university wanted to do 
to have future leaders of the university. And usually people, they were very bougie, I think, who were on it or who at least agreed completely 100% with Bob Jones and the way they ran things. And it would be hard because they would have their own kind of like inner circle and have their own things that they would do together. But it's, but I'm not, I can, I can thinking to yourself, I can never be that. I don't want to be that. And they would put people who can like 100% went with everything, like even to their own views, unlike mental health, like they would get a lot of biblical counselor majors to be leaders who are equipped really to help people with mental health issues at all. And I think, yeah, the idea of community, I think for a lot of people, it does create that because, and I have even talked to some people and they're like, you know what? They're like, I really did love doing all the activities because I was so afraid to be by myself with my own thoughts. I was so afraid what was going to happen. How would I feel if that happened? I kind of liked that control. I, cause it was so familiar and that was interesting right. to me. And like, you're always around people doing all these different things. And even if you got involved with the church, which I did not do, which we talked about in the other episode, just all the levels of control and community. And you're around people that think and believe exactly like you. Yeah. And to me, that's such a dangerous and harmful situation to be in. And it is. And I think it says so much about the leadership when that is the case. And that the leader might really believe that there is one right way to believe. But I also think it's very childlike to need for everyone to see things your way. And if they don't, they're wrong. It can feel like a seven-year-old told you that, right? Not a leader of the church or a university. It's like having us, I think, a ego tantrum. But when it is said that way with fear, unless you believe this way, you won't be safe, then people listen. And I think a lot of people who believe then, when they want to believe that it's the truth, but over time, just like with you, I think they wonder. And they're not quite sure what to do with their wondering because there isn't anyone to talk to about it. So they just have it percolate in their own heads, which can be lonely, can be very loud in your own mind, but very isolating. Yes, yes, most definitely. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your insights. You've helped me learn a lot and consider other things. And thank you for the work that you've done and that you continue to do and just helping so, so many people. Thank you for taking the time to have me on your podcast and also coming on this podcast. It's my pleasure. It's been really wonderful to work with you and to also learn from you and to understand when you have your own personal experiences and your own insights and you're wanting to share them. It's not an easy thing to do, but I think I am hoping for you. It's been very healing but also connecting because you've gotten to see and hear from other people saying, oh, yeah, me too. It (laughs) was a lovely thing. It Um, is. Okay, so good. And I'm happy and very pleased to have been asked to participate in this podcast. 
All right. Awesome. And for people listening, I'm linking Rachel's podcast in the show notes. So please go check out the indoctrination to learn so much more about cults and systems of control. Yes. And anytime you see, or most of the time that you see a social media about podcast, it's put together by the extraordinary pleasure. <laughs> thank uh, you. <laughs> all right. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. Of course. Awesome. The second call expert I have coming on the show is Daniela Messinek Young. She is an American author and speaker who was raised in the religious sex cult, The Children of God. She later served as an intelligence officer for the U.S. Army for over six years, making the rank of captain, and became one of the first women in U.S. Army history to conduct deliberate Round combat operations when she volunteered to serve on a female engagement team and received the Presidential Volunteer Service Award. Daniela lives with her husband and daughter in Maryland and holds a master's degree in industrial and organizational psychology from the Harvard Extension School. Hello. Everyone, I am so excited to have Daniela Messinek Young on the show today. I had her on my podcast, Speaking Out with Angie Pledger, and she's back on this podcast, Surviving Bob Jones University of Christian Cults. And she's here as a survivor and as a cult expert to talk about the analysis that I sent her of Bob Jones University. But thank you so much, Daniela, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me back. I have learned so much about Bob Jones University, and I'm excited to dig into this. Awesome. And after looking over my analysis, what were some thoughts that you had about Bob Jones University? And I know it's a lot, but what were your initial thoughts on that? What do you think of this school? Okay, so like my very first thought is I'm always creeped out by things that are named after founders, right? And I don't see a single reason why a university has to bear the name of the person who started the university. And it's not just a pet peeve. Of course, there's reasons for this, right? And hopefully we can, in the show notes, link this 10-part 10, 10 definition of a cult that I have that I'm developing for my next book, Culting of America. And what I'm trying to show is that cults are not, it's not a binary question. It's not you are a cult or you're not a cult or you are a toxic group or you're not. We're getting into different parts of group behavior. So to start, the charismatic leader is number one, right? Like in a cult, you need a leader. And just in general, right, we can, one way of understanding enlightenment and all of like Western development is it was a movement away from individual charismatic leaders into rational thought. And then in with in religions with a lot of the revivalisms in the 1920s and beyond. And then even in business and corporate America with tech and then later with politics in the 80s and 90s, we've really started seeing this rise of the charismatic leader. First thing I just want people to just always be wary of is when like any organization 
is all about one person at the top, right? Like this, we get this in entrepreneurship. You have to tell your story. You have to make it about you because it's always a way of you're doing it on purpose to pull people's heartstrings, to use your stories in some way to manipulate them. And then there's just this deification process that happens by definition when we make these big organizations all about this person or their founding story, right? We start to see them as this sort of God figure. So that was a lot just on the very first thing of why this is scary to me, stunning kind of organization. And then the other things that really stand out are, of course, information control, right? Like a heavy, I would say it direct information control. Like you are not allowed to read X. You are not allowed to watch X. You are not allowed to associate with X. But then also the sort of subconscious information control that I talk about, which is taking away all of your spare time. So when I see this, like students are required to attend four Bible studies a week, right? And like when you have no free time to think about other things, it's that's the other side of information control, right? Here's what we want you to learn. Here's what we don't want you to learn. And then here is no free brain time for you to have critical thoughts outside of what we're teaching you. And that becomes a really big part of how cults control you. So even if you're in an organization that is not doing like out loud information control, you can still be under information control just because they're taking so much of your free brain time that you don't actually have the ability to go read new books, talk to new people, find out new things and apply them to your life. Yes, those so many great things said right there. And I know it's a long analysis, but are there any other thoughts that you had over the things that I wrote in it? Absolutely. Okay, let's jump right into purity culture. So I have a lot to say on purity culture, which sometimes surprises people because the cult that I grew up in was the pedophile cult, right? Like the one that out loud just said, we think that having sex with children is part of God's will. And they justified it according to the Bible, the verse that says all things done in love are lawful, etc. But the more I have studied cults and coercive control, and especially these religious-based cults, I have begun to see that purity culture and then openly sexually abusive culture are just two sides of the same coin, right? It is still an obsession with the sexuality of your members and often of your child members, right? So that in and of itself is just such a big warning sign. And then I also think that purity culture is, it programs us in this way of we are better than everyone else, right? This is one of the things that cults do really well is tell you that you are the right ones, you are the chosen, right? And there's always some level of self-sacrifice that is required by the cult member in order to achieve this mission. And purity culture is one of those ones where you get a lot of bang for your buck because you're really requiring a lot of sacrifice, but you're giving this direct daily messaging that you are doing this for the mission. And because you are doing this very hard thing, 
you are better than other people. And we see this same sort of purity culture ideology pop up even in cults when they're not talking about sex or they're not religious at all. So the health and wellness movement, which often is a pipeline into not just the alt-right, but all kinds of cults, right? It's the same thing, right? It's the obsession with the purity. Oh, I don't put that in my body. Oh, I don't put that on my hair. And the underlying note is I'm better than you because I work harder and I sacrifice and I know this is the right way. So I think purity culture is in just America in general, but it shows up sometimes again, like deliberately where we talk about it, but also in this subconscious way that really meets this feeling of you are better than everyone else. And that's why you stay here. And that's why you continue to sacrifice. Okay. And then now I really want to talk about the cult of confession that you mentioned. And so this is another big thing that we see in cults and definitely in all kinds of organizations is public shaming used as a motivational tool, right? So almost all like capital C cults that you're ever going to study have some form of ritualized public shaming. And there's several things that are important here. One of them is that they make you report on yourself. So this form of self-confession and God knows your mind or even in the non-religious cults, right? Um, you had the, here's what you need to work on and here's how you always need to be in this sort of position of self-help. I'm broken. I'm not good enough. I need you, the guru, you, the leader, you, the ideology to cleanse me, right? But it also, so it makes you feel very vulnerable and open, but it also makes it so that even your own brain is not safe, right? Even your own thoughts are not safe because you have had to confess on yourself. And people are like, how can they force you to do this? Group norms are very strong. And most humans would rather die than be just cast out or feel like they are completely out of place within the group. So one of my funniest examples of this, if you don't realize how strong group norms are is next time you're in Europe or Seattle, go to a nude beach, but have your clothes on. Go to a place where everyone else is naked, but you have your clothes on and you will feel like you are the naked one. You will feel so out of place and so uncomfortable. And of course, that's a direct flip on what we usually think. But Group norms are so strong, right, that when you're in this group setting, and of course, you have already been isolated in this school, you're not really allowed to associate with that many other people. And now everyone is sitting around confessing on themselves. You have to come up with something about yourself to confess on, or it's not going to go well for you. So that is a way that they really force this sort of confession and it really plays into the feeling of community that cults have. And everyone will say this when you get out of a cult. It's like you miss the community. And I think for those of us that were really raised in these cults and high demand religions, it is one of the saddest things is that you really don't find that level of deep connection very easily. And one of the reasons for that is because cults are hacking connection, right? They're hacking community. They're hacking vulnerability. They're 
forcing vulnerability in order to hack the community and connection that true vulnerability create amongst people, right? So it's everything was called, like you take normal group behavior stuff that works and then you just dial it up to a thousand in a situation of isolation and you're going to end up with something that gets really dark, like a confessional, which shouldn't, of course, get really dark. Yeah. And it's interesting because about like the confession thing, and it's also like the level of control. One aspect that I noticed when I was there was that if you saw someone breaking the school's rules and you did not report them, you are just as responsible or you're treated like you broke that rule yourself. So it creates this niching culture where you avoid people or places where maybe you're not supposed to be or maybe someone might see you. And it's really hard to also find like people you can trust at Bob Jones because you never know who's real and who's just faking it or who's conforming. And because of this snitching culture that you have in pl- they have in place, you're afraid of even saying, I-, I don't like going to school here. Because if you didn't like going to school there, that was also seen as a sign of, oh, you're not a true believer or true Christian, because a true Christian would really love going here. And they would love following the rules and doing all these things. Yeah. No, you're so right about that. And I... I, sh- I try to show this a little bit in uncultured, right? This snitching culture, which I tend to refer to as creating this North Korea prison camp dynamic where you were talking about like, you can't tell if this person is being real. And it's even further than that. They might be being totally real in that moment. And they're sharing with you and you're sharing with them. And then five days later, they are convicted by the spirit or whatever. That was what we called it in the children of God, right? Whatever you call it at Bob Jones University. And then they go confess on you and themselves. And then it like becomes that thing. And it is, this is very handmade tale, right? And cults do this on purpose. One of the reasons for using group punishment is that very thing that you said, like they are trying to make this situation where you are policing each other, right? Coercive control. Nobody ever has enough time in the day for themselves to control like a very large amount of people. So you have to do this. And let me tell you, this is one of the things like even civilians know about the army, right? And about like basic training. If you, if one person messes up, everyone is on the ground doing push-ups. And it becomes this thing, like in the first week of basic training, everybody is at each other's throats because it's, you got to smoke today. Like we had to do all that because of you. And finally, at least with my own platoon, I had to be like, hey, y'all, can we stop for a moment and just use our intelligence to understand that they are going to smoke us every day, right? That's what we are here for. We are here to be formed into a group and broken down and punished and then put back together. So we just know that they're going to be doing this to us and we can try to like not take it out on each other afterwards, right? So in a way you're thwarting their like internal policing. But group punishment is definitely a part of 
breaking people down. And there are so many reasons that it works really well, mm. especially in these situations of isolation, right? Yes. And the thing that was just so awful about that is you don't trust any students and they have this, like you said, this group punishment and this like snitching culture. And in addition to that, if you were a student between the ages of 18 and 22 years old and you were from out of state going to college there, you were required to live in their dormitories on campus. You were not allowed to live on your own independently off campus if you're between those ages and lived or came from out of state. And the reason for this was the level of control they had in each dormitory. I don't know if I wrote this in the analysis, but there's this hierarchy of leadership in every single dorm. So the person at the very top is this dorm supervisor who where all the demerits and all the snitching eventually ends up to this person to report then to another section of Bob Jones called Student Life. Student Life was a terrible place on campus. If you went there, it was a really bad day for you. You were getting a lot of demerits and you were getting in trouble if you're going to Student Life. So this person, the dorm supervisor, they're at the top. And then there's the dorm mentor that is in submission to the dorm supervisor. And then under the dorm mentor, there were residence hall assistants, one on each floor. And the residence hall assistants, they would be in charge of doing room checks, which room checks would happen just about every single day, especially when we were at chapel. We had room jobs that we had to do. And there would be times when you realize that these people had been looking through your stuff because you see things rearranged in your drawers, things have been moved around. So there's just no sense of privacy or autonomy. And then underneath the residence hall assistants are the discipleship group leaders, which there are several on each floor, which was they were the leader of the discipleship groups. We were required to do several nights a week. And then underneath the discipleship group leaders were the assistant discipleship group leaders on every single floor. So you have all these leaders, all these watchmen everywhere throughout this dormitory where this place you are supposed to come back to from a stressful day and relax. But no, like you could literally get in trouble for listening to secular music or reading the wrong book. I say that in air quotes, wrong book in your room. So there's all this level of control and this culture of you're just constantly being watched. It's funny because as you're describing this and just sounds like the children of God, this is exactly what it sounds like, right? Like we were not allowed any of this stuff. And then literally the other half of my brain is going, yep, that sounds like officer school, right? That sounds exactly like being in the military when you have it, right? A military is fractured down from your brigades to your battalions to your companies, and then your platoons, and then inside a platoon, which is supposed to be like, these 40 people are handled by this one leader. Then it goes all the way down to squads, then teams, then the buddy system, right? Two people at a time. So literally, you are never alone. And this was one of the reasons why I mentioned all of this. It's, it's pretty extreme that you're at a regular university and you're going through military-type living arrangements, right? Lack of privacy, invasion into your personal space. And when you talk about it in military terms, no, nobody is hiding that this is about control, 
Like, of course, this is about how you control large groups of people and you're able to especially really break them, right? So lack of privacy is one of the major keystones on which both cults and the military will rely on to break you down and then build you back up into someone else, which is always in their image, someone they can control. And I like this to compare this to the military so much because as a society, we've agreed that we're just okay with that cult. Like it's just necessary for this to happen. But to the point that like when I was in basic training and everyone was just like, that was the number one thing people complained about was the lack of privacy. First thing I want when I get out of here, it's not some great meal. It's not a cigarette. It's not coffee. It's not to see my family. Any of these things that they've been denied. It's I just want to sit in a room by myself for hours and hours was one of the major things people would say. And here I am like, I was like the first time I was ever alone somewhere I was almost 16 years old and had been picked out of the cult. So for me, it's normal. And when you grow up with that being your normal, you just, you've never had privacy. And it makes you, one of the, I think, darker sides of it is it makes you really allergic to being alone. Someone that doesn't know how to be alone. And if they can put that into you when you're between the ages of 18 and 22 years old, like the odds that the church is going to have its hooks into you for life are really very good. They're programming your brain at a very vulnerable developmental stage that being alone is never good. And what you need is this structure and this system and this control and this community. And when you leave the church, or if you grow up and you are having questions about the church community, that's going to keep pulling people back over and over again. And that has been built into you by so many of these different structures. Yeah, thank you for digging into that, because that's not something I really have deeply thought about. That is so true, though. And I think a thing that makes it so hard for people when they go to Bob Jones University is not all the students, but a lot of the students, we came from very strict Christian backgrounds or a very fundamentalist Christian family where most of our lives were like always controlled. And another interesting thing, which I need to cover, I think I'm going to cover in the history episode, but about how Bob Jones, they have their own academy or school from K through 12 also, like all the grades. And they want to funnel these kids into their university eventually. And I know they've had issues where kids growing up in the Bob Jones Academy or their own schools, they're struggling to get them to make that hop from that school to Bob Jones because they don't want to. They don't want to go to Bob Jones University because they grew up in Bob Jones Academy or in their school their entire lives. And a lot of them, they're done with that culture. They're just saturated in it. And sadly, a lot of students are like then they're born into these Bob Jones families that think it's like the best school in the entire world. And they require that all their children go. And it was interesting because for me, no one in my family ever went to Bob Jones University. <laughs> I was the first person to go. My parents they had tried to force me to go to a different college that was still very strict and believe it or not, had more control 
over the students. <laughs> and it, the school also wasn't accredited either. So that was like a big like red flag for me. Like I'll be stuck in this system forever if I can't get a degree where I can work outside of it. But I didn't have many options. And Bob Jones was the only accredited school, which I was surprised that they were accredited anyways. <laughs> Honestly, I was shocked to find that out. Can I say a few things on that? Yes. Is say that it. like his, that was one of the things that stood out to me when I was reading and preparing for this was like, they fought accreditation too, for the exact reason that cult leaders always are fighting accreditation, right? They want to say that they're the only ones that have the right answers. They don't want to be forced into anyone else's program. But what you said about it forcing you to work inside the system, right? I think a lot of people think that's just something that happens. And like, no, that is part of the design of the system, right? So Children of God is pretty famous for no schooling us, right? Like we got no education. We were told that Jesus was coming back in our lifetimes. And so there was no need for us to get an education. But it's also quite convenient with my mother, as an example, who was born and raised also in the children of God. And by the time she's 14 years old, she's pregnant. But also, she has no education. And you see it when I get out of the cult and go to high school. And this is one of the reasons I fought to leave before I was 18, was because I wanted to go to a school that had some sort of accredited high school diploma so that I could get into college. And the children of God, the family, they did the same thing. They made the, up their own bullshit program that was supposedly accredited by whatever international organization they found to rubber stamp it. But it was, we're going to take all of our people's time doing this degree, this program, and then you can't go anywhere else because nobody else accepts that. And so where I almost could barely enroll in high school because I didn't have any credits, any background history. But it's if you spend all the time and work doing this, it's you're going to be so much more likely to stay with the organization. And these are all the kinds of things that become exit costs. It's honestly pretty incredible that you at that young of an age were thinking like that clearly about the risks of doing something that wasn't accredited. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I was going to say was like, we see it with secular families, right? It's in our media all the time, like that toxic parent, right? Tiger parent who went to Harvard and is forcing all of their children to go to Harvard, right? Or the mom that was an ice skater and she's forcing her daughter to be an ice skater. Like when parents force their children down their path, we in Western society have decided that's very toxic. But as soon as it comes to religion, we're like, nope, hands off. You get to force your child to believe whatever you think is good because it's your religion and I shouldn't judge that. Yes, you're exactly right. And because my parents were a little hesitant about sending me to Bob Jones University because they've distanced themselves a bit from the independent fundamental Baptist movement, which is what I grew up in. And my parents were so upset that Bob Jones no longer took the King James Version only stance of the only legitimate word of God. And that's the absolute truth. And they were worried that 
this might cause me to go away. And they might blame Bob Jones for that, maybe because I did go away. But even in their eyes, they were scared of that. And the fact that I had options to go to different churches that weren't IFB only, that was scary to them. And I remember when I went to Bob Jones, I was like, I'm not going to an IFB church. And my dad got so upset about that. It was just like, like the, kind of like the end of the world to him, I think, in a sense, because he saw that as the truth and like the only right way. And there's no other church you should go to. And now I've left all of that behind now. So, of course, they're really upset. But yeah, like that control, like you said, that parents have over their children and how when religion gets involved, it is hands off. And it's like children should have the autonomy. And especially when they grow into adulthood and you're going to going to college, they should have that autonomy to decide for themselves what they really believe and that's the thing when you get to this school, they don't teach you to critically think about their religion. While I was there, I took as part of the curriculum, I took four, probably five, ooh, no, five religion based classes just based on the Bible. Four of those were all about the Bible. Like I took Old Testament, New Testament. I had to take Bible Doctrines 1, Bible Doctrines 2. And then I had to take a class on apologetics to defend fundamentalist Christianity against unbelievers. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, what's so interesting to me, too, hearing you tell your story about your parents is the language of control is all through there, right? They are so afraid they are going to lose control over you. And the sort of funny and sad part, as you mentioned, is, yeah, they did, right? And part of what I think is necessary of understanding these Christian colleges is they exist in the first place because people did not want their children leaving home and going to regular universities, right? And they didn't want them going to school with Black children, right? So those two things, right? But they exist to keep you literally segregated from the world because education is the antidote to religion, right? And often... People, especially people like you and I, who come out of closed off cultures, as soon as you see one thing that doesn't fit what you've been told, like that's often the crack in the brainwashing. And this is what I think is so interesting about these fundamentalist parents that they shoot themselves in the foot. It's if you allowed your child quite a bit more exposure they would have been running into things that don't match their religion since the age of seven or 10, right? And you would have been coaching them through it. And most likely when they get into the grown-up adult world, they're going to keep going with the faith that you chose because most people do. And they're just going to learn to settle their cognitive dissonance in their heads, right? But you and I were not taught those skills, right? This is one of the reasons why cult kids can fall into other cults so easily because we were programmed to be black and white. But unfortunately for the people who programmed us this way, it often goes, oh, I see this one thing from the outside that is unarguably true. And therefore I now realize that you lied to me about everything. It cracks the whole thing down. So I do think it's interesting that sometimes this backfires. But yeah, these colleges, straight and simple, exist because people in the church were losing their children to education and they want mm. 
continue to control even after. It really is, right? Reading Bob Jones University, like all the stuff you sent me, like this is the same as sending off your child to West Point or just still having your child at home in a fundamentalist household because you really do not have any more freedoms than that at this university. Mm -hmm. And there's something I wanted to ask you about is really how cult members can have different experiences in the same group. There are some that have awful and terrible experiences, and there are those who will come out and say, I don't understand why people are talking about this as being harmful. I had a pretty good experience or, oh, it wasn't really that bad. There's these wide range of experiences in the same harmful group. But how does that happen? So there is a lot of things to unpack there. So the first one I will start off with is the simple one. People do have different experiences, right? So, for example, I use myself and my mom as a example, right? So both raised in the children of God, but my mom is a group person, right? She likes to be in groups. She likes to fit in. She's quiet. She's shy. She's one of those go along to get along kinds of children. And I cannot be convinced of anything that I do not want to be convinced of, no matter how hard you beat me, right? I was always that kid who was always questioning, who was always the odd one out, I now know that I'm neurodiverse. There's several reasons that I was different. And then definitely because I didn't fit the group, I was made more different and I was treated more differently. So I think a couple ways this works in me is one, the brainwashing didn't quite stick because I was so always in trouble and always on the outside, right? I never saw myself as part of the us. But also like I did have a worse experience in many ways, because I spent many hours of my life in punishments, in isolations, in all of these things. And really often when we hear the stories of cults, the really crazy extreme stories of coercive religions, we're hearing from the people like me. We're hearing from the people that didn't fit and who were never going to be part of it in the first place, but also had in many ways these worse experiences than the people that just went along with it. And I say the same thing in the army. Part of why I wrote Uncultured was to show all of these like good-hearted, six-foot-two, blue-eyed, blonde, white men, like my husband, that, yeah, if you look like that and you're a helicopter pilot, like you probably had a pretty easy career in the army, right? Like the army probably wasn't this overall negative experience for you. But every demographic you get away from that, you have a harder and harder time because these groups are intended to force you into being homogenous, right? So I think there are different kinds of people that have different experiences, even in the same group that we've determined is coercive or toxic. But then coming outside of that, one of the main reasons that people will deny it is because they're still in it, whether that's in the group or just in the programming. So like when I say things like the children of God trafficked children all around the world, my own peers will get very upset with me because they have not gone through the process of understanding that like, you know, I was deported from Japan at the age of three. If you were deported at the age of three, something's going on there, right? Like 
they don't see being sneaked across the border as international child trafficking felonies. They see it as we have to sneak across the border to, to follow God's will, just the way that prophet did in the Bible, right? So they're still under that programming. They're still using the words and the terminology that the group gave them. And one of the things that's really determined is that you cannot talk about what happened if you don't share a reality. If you do not agree on a shared reality of what you went through, right? Like I would guarantee the hardest conversations you've had about what you went through at Bob Jones University is from other people from Bob Jones University. Same for me, right? Like I have siblings that have not been in the children of God for decades who will not talk to me because I wrote a book and they have not done their own work yet and they can't therefore deal with these conversations. And this is really hard because when you're doing all your work of deconstructing, you just want everyone who's been through it to also like come on this journey because we know it's healing, right? Like we know we are like unpacking these awful wounds and it's healing us and it's transforming us. And it's also helping us see these patterns that we didn't see before, but it's really not something you can rush people through. The thing I will say so I say that because I was getting my graduate degree at Harvard studying organizational psychology while I was writing my book that was paralleling a sex cult to the U.S. Army. So a lot of my projects I did were on the experience of women in the U.S. Army, like setting up our experience against this very controlling organization. And I kept saying over and over again that this whole degree just feels like it's me finding out that women meet every definition of an oppressed class, right? Within the military, which is this, we all know, very controlling organization. And the thing is, if, you know, you're a member of an oppressed class, which is going to be true if you're in any of these controlling organizations, you can't have that experience without trauma. So it is like being a person of color in America or an LGBTQIA member in America, you do not have that experience without also experiencing some trauma. And so even people, right, you can talk to individuals of color that will say, I've never experienced racism or I wasn't affected by it. And you can talk to people who don't think they've been discriminated against for their sexual orientation. They just it's weird to say, like, they just don't know that they have, right? But it's because of the narrative in their head, they are not able to see it. But we know people that study this and study groups and systems and how this works is like, you just can't be a member of an oppressed class without experiencing some trauma. So this is what I feel very much about people that have come out of these High control religions or cults, right? And it's often is this fear of unpacking it because their narrative is that they didn't experience any trauma. And if they unpack it or if they listen to your language and my language, how we're talking about it, they're going to lose the ability to just gloss over everything and say, oh, it was fine. Like my peers and the children of God have a really hard time being like, yeah, we had a crazy life, but it was fun growing up. Something they all like to say, 
when you say, but oh yeah, all that singing and dancing we did on the streets, that was international child trafficking, right? Like it's hard to just then gloss over that with a happy, oh, I don't want to think about it right now. So I, in my opinion, like this is the big kickback to that, right? To these groups, because in general, if someone else is telling us about a bad experience they had, right? Like we don't have this reaction. If I go out and say, oh my God, Andrew, I'm so sorry. I was late for this program today. Like I was just stuck in the worst traffic. You would never come back and be like, it's interesting because I just drove down your street five minutes ago and I didn't experience any traffic. I don't think traffic is a big deal, right? Like you just wouldn't respond like that because we in the social construct of humans understand that human beings have different experiences. But for some reason, when it is talking about these negative experience in groups, really hits into our like internal programming. And it's just, it just becomes super, super hard to have these discussions about what the impact was if the person is not trying to unpack that already. And people just somehow feel like they have to have had the same experience. I don't maybe have all of the best thoughts around that aspect of it worked out yet. But I know that it's something we've all dealt with. Yes. Really what you're talking about, and which something I've looked into a little bit in understanding is like the theory of intersectionality, of how overlapping social identities and a person are affected in different environments. As you're talking about this, I grew up in the IFB cults with three brothers. My oldest brother, who is straight, dominant, white, male, very masculine, had a very different experience than me, who's gay, very feminine, and did not conform to this extreme stereotype of what a boy is supposed to be. He had a very different experience than me, same environment, but because of those differing social identities. And again, like you were saying, like when you don't belong or happen to be what the group wants you to be and you're out of place and you don't belong, it makes it so much harder. There's the trauma from that. And that's why I'm excited because in the podcast, when, when I decided to make it, I'm like, I need to interview people from all kinds of different backgrounds and understand all these different kinds of experiences that people have had based on their different social identities to get the overall picture of different oppressed classes in this system of control. And then also, I think there's so much power into almost like layering different stories in a row too because then you start to really understand so I always tell anyone who's I'm trying to understand my experience in this group I don't know if it was a cult and I'm like my first stop is just go get five cult memoirs here are the five I recommend and read them in a row right because no matter what, we all center our own experience. So we start thinking like, oh, it was like this for me. So it was like this for everyone. But we also start thinking like it was my group, right? It was Bob Jones University that is the cult, is problematic, is whatever. 
But as soon as you start reading enough different ones, for me, I had this moment when I jumped from Christian cults over to Scientology. And I was like, oh, oh, it's all the same. So these patterns really start to stand out. And when you see, I think, especially from what we were talking about before, like when you see other people putting something that they went through, that if they just said it, like I grew up in a sex cult, right? You would think you have nothing in common with that. But when you read the words that are in my book, the explanations of the experiences or the feelings that I went through, you realize that there's so much similarity there. So I think that is another thing. And just one thing as we were talking about, again, I like you were talking about your brother and you and how you had these different experiences. And I think we see that in the military too. And it's really funny because you get these kids that join the military who are like from these liberal backgrounds and these homes where their parents were just like their friends or their consultants to help them grow up. And often these people just completely fall apart in the military, at least in the beginning. Because that's what it's designed to do. We're going to take your hair. We're going to tell you what to look like. We're going to tell you how to talk. We're going to tell you how to act. We're going to be in your face all of the time. In waltz those of us from cults and high control religions, right? And we do very well in the military because we are already used to this experience of being in a group and being controlled and being told what to do, right? So I think, and of course, I'm not saying that growing up that way wasn't harmful, but you often, you see that, right? It's like the same experience, but people from one background or with one sort of makeup of their personality having this significant struggle with it. And then you see people that have a different personality makeup are just breezing through it. And by definition, it's the same experience, but it never is because of what you mentioned, all of the intersectionalities of our personalities and what made us who we are growing up. Yes. And my gosh, I'm I'm loving this conversation. I'm I'm just going to keep going with the questions because there's just so much more to dig into. But this is just an idea that just a question that came up and it's really, is there such a thing as a good cult? Oh, I get asked this question so much. In fact, the introduction of my next book is called Good Cult, Bad Cult. And I think I will one day be writing a third book called The Good Cults, right? For people who want to learn how to maximize human potential. So I think that the way we use the word cults, of course, the word cults has evolved, right? It came from the word culture. And if you're ever reading like stuff about ancient Egypt, for example, it's important to know that when they say the cult of ISIS, they just mean this new religion that was coming up. It was in development or whatever. But these days, the word cult has a negative connotation. And I think we need that. So I think when we are describing a cult, we are describing an atmosphere of coercive control, right? And like when I have my 10-part list of this makes a cult, this is just my 10-part list of if you have all these things, you have a group with almost ironclad coercive control over your people. And one of the definitions of most cults is also exploits labor. Exploits labor and has high exit costs, making it really hard for people to leave if they don't fit. So unless you think your group is the most perfect place in the world where everyone fits, 
which unfortunately most cults do, you can see high exit costs as a traumatizing or negative thing as well. And I think exploitation of labor is pretty clearly negative. My complicated answer to that is I don't think you can have a positive cult in the way that we use the word cults. And I think what people are asking when they say that is, you know, what, what I do, a lot of my work that I do is to take what makes a cult and just demystify it for people and then put it against regular groups, right? So in my next book, The Culting of America, I'm going to give you the cult spectrum. And it's these 10 parts of group behavior that correspond to the definition. And if you relate to every chapter in this book, then you're probably in a cult, right? However, I believe that everyone is going to relate to some chapter of the book, right? For the current organization that they're in. It's just like, where can you find the areas that are meant that, or that like regularly turn toxic or the warning signs, right? And just make your group not go toxic. And so what people are asking when they say this is the flip side of that is, can you just knowing a lot about cults and really which is knowing a lot about human potential and can you maximize it and point it in a certain direction without it going negative and i don't know that the answer to that is yes like i don't know that human beings can do that and so far the only cult-like group i've looked at that i haven't seen almost any negatives to is the swifties i love that oh my gosh <laughs> But yeah, thank you so much for answering that. That was just an interesting question I had in my mind. And I wanted your thoughts on that. I feel like we've maybe covered this a little bit, but maybe you want to dig into it more if you want to. But how powerful is group influence over individual choices? Very powerful. There is a man named J. Richard Townsend, who was one of the like defining scholars on teams and teamwork. And he he has this concept, which is what I wrote my book to illustrate. And he basically says human beings will do almost anything to fit in with their voluntary groups. And I was like, yep, I can show you that with a cult and I can show you that with the army. The word voluntary there is important. And I think this is why when we're children and we're forced to be in these groups, we can act out so much or we can hold our line against being broken in some ways. But when we voluntarily choose to be in this group, I'll say like in the army, anytime I had a critical complaint, I would be like, Nella, you chose to be here. You signed up for this, right? Come on. So you coerce yourself or not stop yourself into compliance. And there's some research in regular organizations that suggests it takes six months to a year after onboarding into a sort of regular nine to five job, right? Where you, you stop seeing things as new. You start seeing your organization as normal. And so you don't have the same perspective. And that timeline for high control organizations is six to eight weeks, which as a former commander of army basic training told me, there's a reason that the minimum time for basic training is eight weeks long, right? It's like, this is the amount of time that they can take you and they can totally transform you. There's also interesting research. So I mentioned in the prologue of Uncultured, I'm there holding this 50 pound duffel bag above my head. 
So this is a famous thing they do in army basic training. And you have to go outside and it's always either pouring rain or blistering sun. And you're holding this extremely heavy duffel bag over your head for about two to three hours, right? And this is part of the process of them breaking you down. And as I've analyzed this, there's two things that are really important about this specific activity and why it happens right in the beginning. And those two things are, it's impossible. Nobody can do it, right? So you're going to break down. You're going to drop it. You're going to feel awful about yourself. All of those kinds of things that we've already talked about that cults like to hack into. But also, it's irrational, right? There's no reason for it. You're, nobody outside of the army has ever asked you to go outside and hold 50 pounds above your head. And you'll never be asked to do it again, most likely, in the rest of your career in the army. So there's interesting research that shows that once we engage in the first irrational group behavior, and you can think of all rites of passage, all hazing, right? All of these things that you have to do to be accepted into groups. Once you engage in the first irrational group behavior, you are so likely to engage in it again as to make it almost impossible that you will not engage in the group behavior in the future. So this is like the question of if all your if all your friends jumped off a cliff, would you jump off it too? Yes. Yes, you would. You know, most likely. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for your thoughts on that. And that's interesting because yeah, it's just so much, so many different elements and different parts about Bob Jones University. But like one thing, kind of as you were talking about that, that I was thinking of was I remembered that before when you were there, they called it signing a covenant. We were all required to sign a covenant and we had to read the student handbook with other rules and other regulations and saying basically that we're going to follow this blah, blah, blah. And being like, if we break some of these, demerits could happen or ex you know we could be expelled. That's not the exact wording. That's just like a general idea of it. And I remember like telling someone that before I went there and they're like, what? Signing a covenant. And like, that's, that seems really weird. What do you mean? That seems strange. Yes. It seems very culty. Ask yes. how I know. <laughs> I don't, I think there are people in my life that I knew outside of my environment that wanted to say you're going into a harm, you're going to a harmful college or you're going to a cult. But I don't think people were afraid to say that because I think they knew how controlling my parents were. And I think also a lot of people knew that I, I wasn't really thrilled or really didn't want to go there anyways. I just didn't have options. And like you were talking about much earlier about how there's not much difference between being in these fundamentalist households, households or these high control religious families and then going to these Christian universities where every aspect of your life is controlled. Yeah. And so for me, I knew that I was going from one high control environment into another. And I knew there would be so many rules and I, that I would be watched. But I was like, at least I don't have my parents breathing down my neck constantly. And I was surprised at what I could get away with at Bob Jones University. Once I learned this system, <laughs> 
And let me tell you, Andrew, like this is often an important process of escaping a cult is going to the level that gets you a little bit more freedom. So like I had a friend who was pressed into service to the, yes, she called herself queen of the cults, who was the leader of Children of God at that time. And she had to come up with this whole story of going to Serbia to leave some group mission because she was Serbian. And that was like her process to be like, I am away from the flagpole. I'm away from the most serious center of who is controlling me right now, which in your case was your parents. Getting away from that, even though you were still in a area where the locus of control was very hi, that was still part of your escape plan. Yes, exactly. And yeah, and it's interesting how you were saying, like working your way up in the system, because definitely a lot of, I think, professors had and other people had this idea of me being this very devout Christian. And I ended up becoming a bit, I guess, a bit close to the professor at the university And they hired me to work for them in their department, in the photography department. And then they eventually, towards the end of my college career, made me a crew chief over the art department at Bob Jones University. And like me, at that point, when I got that position, I was like, oh my God, this is so strange. Like here I am breaking all the rules behind their backs. And when I got that position, I knew I had deconverted from the religion internally. I hadn't spoken out about my experiences or my childhood and even being in that environment. And I'm like, this is so uncomfortable. Like the cognitive dissonance. Yeah. But also, you know, it, it stands out to me that what you're describing here is this drive to prove that you are perfect, like you are a perfect cog in this system and in this machine. And it's because you're so different, right? It's because you're doubting. I never realized till way later in my journey that being a great student can often be a sign of depression, right? It's this is where I'm going to get attention from. I'm going to get attention by being the most amazing student. And that was a huge part of it for me when I was in my undergraduate, right? So I I never want people, especially the, those of us who grew up in cults, I never want you to feel guilty about how much you had to work the system while you were trying to escape it, because that is often the process. and often. It is because we are trying so hard to play their game that we get high enough to really start spotting some of the holes and start of the, some of the problems, right? But yes, this is, this happens so often in cults, right? Where like the whistleblower of Nexium, for example, was their top recruiter, right? Sarah Edmondson puts, she estimated over 2000 people got them into Nexium, right? And she, Her podcast is so great, a little bit culty. Everyone go listen to it, right? And I really like how she just says, yeah, I did that, right? I bought in. I went all the way. It doesn't, I think that sometimes there's cognitive dissonance for people that it doesn't mean you weren't having doubts, right? But when you leave the church, it comes as this big surprise sometimes to those people, right? And 
again, this can be one of those exit costs, right? Like I imagine you were there going, I don't believe this anymore. I'm breaking all the rules behind their backs. But the second I say that out loud, I lose all these people, right? I lose all these relationships. They will no longer, most likely, stand by me. That becomes an extremely high exit cost, right? Even I almost stayed in the children of God, even after a year and a half long campaign to get myself excommunicated. I almost stayed because I was so afraid of going out on my own and just losing everything and everyone I'd known. Yes, yes. The high exit costs do make it leave. And I think I got to the point where I think I was, I didn't care. I was expelled from Bob Jones for speaking out, telling my story and like publicly denouncing their teachings and just fundamentalist teachings in general. And then coming out as gay, that was just a lot going on there, <laughs> telling the world. But I was ready to leave because I didn't have that sense of belonging there. I didn't have, I only had maybe two true friends when I left and I'm still friends with one of those people even after leaving and all the other fake ass friends that I had, they're gone. <laughs> it's fine. I don't want them. <laughs> I don't need that. And it is hard too, because I was such a perfectionistic person. I was such a people pleaser. I was destroying the reputation that I had built my entire life. <laughs> yeah. And there's this quote that I think is so powerful for those of us that go through this experience is a lot of people only loved the version of you that they could control. And Ooh. I had this experience that you were talking about, right? I did not talk about my cult background. Of course, when I left the cult, I lost everyone, right? That wasn't a, that was just a black and white dynamic. But then I spent six years in the regular world. And then I spent time in the army. And like most of that, I was not talking about my background. I was just being a perfectionist, right? I was just trying so hard to prove that I belonged and that I could outrun all my trauma. And when I started talking about it, I lost a lot of people, right? And not just the cult stuff, right? Because some people be like, oh, people don't want to hear about all that. I'm like, even when I talk about stuff from the military, right? Like, Everyone if, of my family and some close friends that I've lost, like they were fine with me being a soldier. They were proud of having this like shiny captain in the family. But as soon as you want to start talking about, and this is true throughout the veteran community, right? As soon as you start wanting to talking about the problems, as soon as you want to start critically discussing what the impact of your time and service was, all of a sudden you start losing people. I think a lot of it is what we talked about before is that when you start deconstructing and when you start being unwilling or being willing to unpack your traumas, but also just live in your integrated full self and be who you are, will you stop being willing to go along with the whitewashing? So for 10 years, I didn't say I grew up in a cult. I said I grew up in a missionary group. But about it in the first year that I started telling most of the people in my life that like, no, I grew up in Children of God, this really bad cult, I stopped being willing to say, oh, I'm a missionary kid, right? Or, oh, my parents were in this international missionary organization because I, I'm not cool with the whitewashing of it. And so 
I've lost a lot of friends and family that are not in the cult either, but they want to live in their whitewashy world of, oh, it was whatever. I don't want to deal with it. And so it becomes too uncomfortable for them to be around me, who is going to use these more direct terms to talk about it. And I, I just think there's always this kind of tension. And what I say to people is no one can live in the closet forever. It's not a fun life. And when you come out, like you will lose friends and family, but you'll get more of them on this side. Like you will find better friends and people that are closer to you than family members who only wanted you when they could control you. Yes, so many good points and just wonderful and true things that you said. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast and giving your expertise and even like connecting it to your own experience and even other groups and society and backgrounds. And I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of people to understand the spectrum of cults and the control. And I'm hoping through this episode and through this podcast that people can come out on the other end knowing what a cult is and knowing why people join them and to protect themselves from any kind of high control group, period. But thank you so much for coming on the show. And just to make a last comment on what you were talking about with the perfectionism and stuff mm -hmm. is that I think that one of the things that's really important to understand when you're trying to deconstruct your cult or your high control group experience is that during your membership in that group, you were required to self-sacrifice or self-sublimate, tone yourself down or sacrifice the individual for the good of the group. And that's what comes out when we leave. That's what comes out as people pleasing. That's what comes out as the perfectionism. We're still doing that. And I think stating it that way, we need to do things for ourselves. We need to celebrate our big wins. We need to have crazy birthday parties. We need to tell people to go get bent that we're not doing the thing they want us to do, right? Because we just don't have practice at all in putting ourselves first or not always putting whatever group we are in above ourselves. And that's something, whether you call it a cult or not, that I think this university definitely is guilty of, is asking its people for constant self-sacrifice and self-sublimation. So in these very important years of 18 to 22, you are, it's the opposite of learning to be yourself and self-discovery that you're supposed to have in college. It is learning to be this nice, obedient group member. And that can be some of the hardest stuff to deconstruct. And I'm glad you're doing this work. I know both of your podcasts are so helpful to people that are going through this like very raw, very real and very challenging journey. Yes, thank you for saying that. And it's an honor. And thank you for all the work that you have done. Like you've gone through so much in your life and you've overcome come so much and just getting yourself out of the environment and even finishing high school going to college and just going to harvard writing a memoir having this career and like dedicating your life to helping other cult survivors and helping other people recognize these harmful group 
dynamics. So thank and like just all that you all the free content that you make on TikTok. Thank you so much. And for people listening, of course, for people listening, please go follow her on TikTok if you're not already. I'll link that below. She makes some incredible videos and has some great insights that you I think a lot of people who grew up in high control environments will relate to. But yeah, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surviving Bob Jones University. It would be greatly appreciated if you could give the podcast a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Leaving reviews helps listeners just like you find the show.